Welcome to Womance's Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, public access, read along. I am your even chapter host, Isabeau. And I am the odd chapter host, Morgan. Odd ducks, odd chapters. Odd duck, odd chapter. So that means it's my week. It's your week. And since it's your week, I'll let everybody know, including myself and yourself, What happened in the last chapter? (laughs) Chapter 18 was a doozy. We learned that beautiful, lustrous, dark-haired Blanche Ingram, while she's working real hard to get Mr. Rochester to like her, it's not working. She's a try-hard, and Jane is eating her heart out because she's like, I could do this better. Lo and behold, the house party gets weirder and weirder. They play like the worst, most fucked up game of party charades I've ever heard about. And then on a dark and stormy night when Mr. Rochester is on some business in Millcut, an old fortune teller woman shows up and only wants to talk to the single unmarried young ladies in the house party and says something untoward and shakes Blanche Ingram, delights the other young ladies of the house party, and then asks specifically for the last young lady who's unattached, which is our very own Jane. Sleeper hit of the series, Sam the Footman. (laughs) Who does a really radiant job conducting the house party in his master's absence as this weirdo fortune teller sorceress shows up. Did you mention their random Johnny come lately as well? I did not. We have a sallow, nice-featured, low-brow, vacant-eyed, handsome do-dandy named Mr. Mason show up, who presumes on his old friendship with Mr. Rochester that he can stay the night even without being invited. The white person with a Jamaican accent, which always trips me up, man. Jane refers to it as like an accent of a kind of English. And I was like, okay. Okay. And so here we are in the dark hallway of chapter 19 as we continue on our Lovecraftian descent into madness. Lovecraftian for a few reasons, all the weird stuff and also the racism. Okay. Okay, here we go. The library looked tranquil enough as I entered it, and the Sybil, if Sybil she were, was seated snugly enough in an easy chair at the chimney corner. She had on a red cloak and a black bonnet, or rather, a broad-brimmed gypsy hat, tied down with a striped handkerchief under her chin. An extinguished candle stood on the table. She was bending over the fire and seemed reading in a little black book like a prayer book by the light of the blaze. She muttered the words to herself as most old women do while she read. She did not desist immediately on my entrance. It appeared she wished to finish a paragraph. I stood on the rug and warmed my hands, which were rather cold with sitting at the distance from the drawing room fire. I felt now as composed as ever I did in my life. There was nothing, indeed, in the gypsy's appearance to trouble one's calm. She shut her book and slowly looked up. Her hat brim partially shaded her face. Yet I could see, as she raised it, that it was a strange one. It looked all brown and black. Elf locks bristled out from beneath a white band which passed under her chin and came half over her cheeks, or rather, jaws. Her eye confronted me at once with a bold and direct gaze. Elf locks is a cute word for tangled hair. That is nice. I prefer that. I do too. My footnote doesn't say it's a cute word. That's me editorializing, for the record. 
Well, and you want your fortune told, she said in a voice as decided as her glance, as harsh as her features. I don't care about it, mother. You may please yourself, but I ought to warn you, I have no faith. It's like your impudence to say so. I expected it of you. I heard it in your step as you crossed the threshold. Did you? You have a quick ear. I have. A quick eye. And a quick brain. You need them all in your trade. I do, especially when I have customers like you to deal with. Why don't you tremble? I'm not cold. Why don't you turn pale? I'm not sick. Why don't you consult my art? I'm not silly. The old crone nichered a laugh under her bonnet and bandage. Laughed snickeringly. And it's dialect, so that's just something that they say in the north of England, I guess? She then drew out a short black pipe, and lighting it began to smoke. Having indulged a while in the sedative, she raised her bent body, took the pipe from her lips, and while gazing steadily at the fire, said, Very You are cold, you are sick, and you are silly. Prove it, I rejoined. Prove I'm cold. I will, in few words. You are cold because you are alone. Contact strikes the fire from you that is in you. You are sick because the best of feelings, the highest and the sweetest given to man, keeps far away from you. You are silly because you suffer as you may. You will not beckon it to approach, nor will you stir one step to meet it where it awaits you. She again put her short black pipe to her lips and renewed her smoking with vigor. (laughs) Very pleased with herself. (laughs) No kidding. Sucking that pipe with vigor. You might say all that to almost anyone who you knew lived as a solitary dependent in a great house. (laughs) Good point, Jane. (laughs) I might say it to almost anyone, but would it be true of almost anyone? In my circumstances? Yes, just so in your circumstances. But find me another precisely placed as you are. It would be easy to find you thousands. You could scarcely find me one. And if you knew it, you are peculiarly situated. Very near happiness, yes, within reach of it. The materials are all prepared. There are only once a movement to combine them. Chance laid them somewhat apart. Let them be at once approached and bliss results. I don't understand enigmas. I never could guess a riddle in my life. If you wish me to speak more plainly, show me your palm. And I must cross it with silver, I suppose, to be sure. Gave her a shilling. She put it in an old stocking foot, which she took out of her pocket. Having tied it around and returned it, she told me to hold out my hand. I did. She approached her face to the palm and poured over it without touching it. It is too fine, said she. I can make nothing of such a hand as that, almost without lines. Besides, what is a palm? Destiny is not written there. I believe you, said I. No, she continued. It is in the face, on the forehead, about the eyes eyes themselves, in the lines of the mouth, kneel and lift up your head. Ah, now you are coming to reality, I said as I obeyed her. I shall begin to put some faith in you presently. We knelt within half a yard of her. She stirred the fire so that a ripple of light broke from the disturbed coal. The glare, however, as she sat, only threw her face into deeper shadow. Mine, it illuminated. I wonder with what feelings you came to me tonight, she said, when she had examined me a while. I wonder what thoughts are busy in your heart during all the hours you sit in yonder room with the fine people flitting before you like shapes in a magic lantern, just as little sympathetic communion passing between you and them as if they were really mere shadows of human forms 
and not the actual substance. I feel tired often, sleepy sometimes, but seldom sad. Then you have some secret hope to buoy you up and please you with whispers of the future. Not I. The utmost I hope is to save money enough out of my earnings to set up a school someday in a little house rented by myself. A mean nutriment for the spirit to exist on. And sitting in that window seat, you see I know your habits. You have learned them from the servants. Ah, you think yourself sharp. Well, perhaps I have. To speak truth, I have an acquaintance with one of them, Mrs. Poole. I stared at my feet when I heard the name. You have, have you? Thought I. There is a diablerie in the business after all, then. Devilry. Diablerie. Stevelry. Don't be alarmed, continued the strange being. She's a safe hand, Mrs. Poole, close and quiet, as anyone may repose confidence in her. But as I was saying, sitting in that window seat, do you think of nothing but your future school? Have you no present interest in any of the company who occupy the sofas and chairs before you? Is there not one face you study? One figure whose movements you follow with, at least, curiosity? I like to observe all the faces and all the figures. But do you never single one of them out from the rest? Or may it be two? Uh, I do frequently, when the gestures or looks of a pair seem telling a tale, it amuses me to watch them. What tale do you like best to hear? Oh, I have not much choice. They generally run on the same theme, courtship, promise to end in the same catastrophe, marriage. Do you like that monotonous theme? Positively, I don't care about it. It is nothing to me. Nothing to you. When a lady young and full of life and health, charming with beauty and endowed with rank and fortune, sits and smiles in the eyes of a gentleman, you, I what? You know, and perhaps think well of. I don't know the gentleman here. I've scarcely interchanged a syllable with one of them. I consider some respectable and stately and middle-aged, and others young, dashing, handsome, and lively. But certainly they are all at liberty to be recipients of who smiles they please without my feeling disposed to consider the transaction of any moment to me. You don't know the gentleman here. You have not exchanged a syllable with one of them. Will you say that of the master of the house? He's not at home. A profound remark! A most ingenious quibble! He went to Milcott this morning and will be back here tonight or tomorrow. Does that circumstance exclude him from the list of your acquaintances? Blot him, as it were, out of existence? Uh, no. But I can scarcely see what Mr. Rochester has to do with the theme you had introduced. I was talking of ladies smiling in the eyes of gentlemen, and of late so many smiles have been shed into Mr. Rochester's eyes that they overflow like two cups filled above the brim. Have you never remarked that? Mr. Rochester has a right to enjoy the society of his guests. No question about his right, but have you never observed that of all the tales told here about matrimony, Mr. Rochester has been favored with the most lively and most continuous? The eagerness of a listener quickens the tongue of a narrator. I said this rather to myself than to the gypsy, whose strange talk, voice, manner had by this time wrapped me in a kind of dream. One unexpected sentence came from her lips after another till I got involved in a web of mystification and wondered what unseen spirit had been sitting for weeks by my heart, watching its workings and taking record of every pulse. Eagerness of a listener, repeated she. Yes, Mr. Rochester has sat by the hour, his ear inclined to the fascinating lips that took such delight in their task of communicating. And Mr. Rochester was so willing to receive and looked so grateful for the pastime given him. You have noticed this. Grateful? I cannot remember detecting gratitude in his face. Detecting? You have analyzed then, and what did you detect if not gratitude? I said nothing. 
You have seen love, have you not? In looking forward, you have seen him married and beheld his bride happy? Not exactly. Your witch's skill is rather at fault sometimes. What the devil have you seen then? Never mind. I came here to inquire, not to confess. Is it known that Mr. Rochester is to be married? Yes, and to the beautiful Miss Ingram. Shortly, appearances would warrant that conclusion, and no doubt... But with an audacity that wants chastising out of you, you seem to question it. They will be superlatively happy pair. Must love such a handsome, noble, witty, accomplished lady. And probably she loves him. Or if not his person, at least his purse. I know she considers the Rochester estate eligible to the last degree, though, God pardon me, I told her something on that point about an hour ago which made her look wondrous grave. Corners of her mouth fell half an inch. I would advise her black-avised suitor to look out if another comes with a longer or clearer rent roll he's dished. But mother, I did not come to hear Mr. Rochester's fortune. I came to hear my own, and you have told me nothing of it. Your fortune is yet doubtful. When I examined your face, one trait contradicted another. Chance has meted you a measure of happiness, that I know. I knew it before you came here this evening. She has laid it carefully on one side of you. I saw her do it. Depends on yourself to stretch out your hand and take it up. But whether you will do so is the problem I study. Kneel again on the rug. Don't keep me long. The fire scorches me. I knelt. She did not stoop toward me, only gazed, leaning back in her chair. She began muttering. Flame flickers in the eye. The eye shines like dew. It looks soft and full of feeling. It smiles at my jargon. It is susceptible. Impression follows impression through its clear sphere. When it ceases to smile, it is sad. Unconscious lassitude weighs on the lid. That signifies melancholy resulting from loneliness. It turns from me. I will not suffer further scrutiny. It seems to deny, by a mocking glance, the truth of the discoveries I have already made. To dishonor the charge both of sensibility and chagrin, pride and reserve only confirm me in my opinion. The eye is favorable. As to the mouth, delights at times in laughter, is disposed to impart all that the brain conceives, though I dare say it would be silent on much the heart experiences. Mobile and flexible, it was never intended to be compressed in the eternal silence of solitude. It is a mouth which should speak and smile often, and have human affection for its interlocutor. That feature, too, is propitious. I see no enemy to a fortunate issue but in the brow, and that brow professes to say, I can live alone. If self-respect and circumstances require me to do so, need not sell my soul to buy bliss. I have an inward treasure born with me which can keep me alive if all extraneous delights should be withheld were offered only at a price I cannot afford to give. The forehead declares, Reason sits firm and holds the reins, and she will not let the feelings burst away and hurry her to wild chasms. The passion may rage furiously, like true heathens as they are, and the desires may imagine all sorts of vain things. Judgment shall still have the last word in every argument and the casting vote in every decision. Strong wind, earthquake shock, and fire may pass by, but I shall follow the guiding of that still, small voice which interprets the dictates of conscience. Well said, forehead. Your declaration shall be respected. I have formed my plans, right plans I deem them, and in them I have attended to the claims of conscience. 
the counsels of reason. I know how soon youth would fade and bloom perish if, in the cup of bliss offered, but one dreg of shame or one flavor of remorse were detective. And I do not want sacrifice, sorrow, dissolution. Such is not my taste. I wish to foster, not to blight, to earn gratitude, not to wring tears of blood, no, nor of brine. My harvest must be in the smiles and endearments and sweet. That will do. I think I rave in a kind of exquisite delirium. I should wish now to protract this moment ad infinitum, but I dare not. So far I have governed myself thoroughly. I have acted as I inwardly swore I would act. Further might try me beyond my strengths. Rise, Miss Eyre, leave me. The play is played out. Where was I? Did I wake or sleep? Had I been dreaming? Did I dream still? The old woman's voice had changed. Her accent, her gesture, and all were familiar to me as my own face in the glass, as the speech of my own tongue. I got up but did not go. I looked, I stirred the fire, and I looked again. But she drew her bonnet and her bandage closer around her face, and again beckoned me to depart. The flame illuminated her hand stretched out. Roused now, and on the alert for discoveries, I at once noticed that my hand, it was no more the withered limb of Eld than my own, it was a rounded, supple member, with smooth fingers, symmetrically turned, a broad ring flashed on the little finger, and, stooping forward, I looked at it and saw a gem I had seen a hundred times before. Again I looked at the face which was no longer turned from me. On the contrary, the bonnet was doffed, the bandage displaced, the head advanced. Well, Jane, do you know me? asked the familiar voice. Only take off the red cloak, sir, and then... The string is in a knot, help me. Break it, sir. There, then. Off ye lendings. And Mr. Rochester stepped out of his disguise. Now, sir, what a strange idea. But well carried out, eh? Don't you think so? With the ladies you must have managed well, but not with you. You did not act the character of a gypsy with me. What character did I act? My own. No, some unaccountable one. In short, I believe you have been trying to draw me out, or in. You have been talking nonsense to me, to make me talk nonsense. And it's scarcely fair, sir. You forgive me, Jane. I cannot tell till I have thought it all over. If, on reflection, I find I have fallen into no great absurdity, I shall try to forgive you. But it was not right. Oh, you have been very correct, very careful, very sensible. I reflected and thought on the whole I had. It was a comfort, but indeed I had been on my guard from the beginning of the interview. Something of a masquerade I suspected. I knew gypsies and fortune tellers did not express themselves as this seeming old woman had expressed herself. Besides, I had noted her feigned voice, her anxiety to conceal her features. But my mind had been running on Grace Poole, that living enigma, that mystery of mysteries. As I considered her, I never thought of Mr. Rochester. Well, said he, what are you musing about? What does that grave smile signify? Wonder and self-congratulation, sir. I have your permission to retire now, I suppose? No, stay a moment. Tell me what the people in the drawing room yonder are doing. Discussing the gypsy, I dare say. Sit down, sit down, let me hear what they say about me. I better not stay long, sir. It must be near eleven o'clock. Oh, are you aware, Mr. Rochester, that a stranger has arrived here since you left this morning? A stranger? No, who can it be? I expect no one. Is he gone? No, he said he had known you long and that he could take the liberty of installing himself here till you returned. The devil he did. Did he give his name? His name is Mason, sir. Uh, I think he comes from the West Indies, from Spanish Town in Jamaica, I think. Mr. Rochester was standing near me. He had taken my hand as if to lead me to a chair. As I spoke, he gave my wrist a convulsive grasp. The smile on his lips froze. Apparently, a spasm caught his breath. Mason, 
The West Indies, he said, in a tone one might fancy a speaking automaton to announce its single words. Mason, the West Indies, he reiterated, and went over the syllables three times, growling in the intervals of speaking, wider than ashes. He hardly seemed to know what he was doing. Do you feel ill, sir? I inquired. Jane, I've got a blow. I've got a blow, Jane, he staggered, as in he has received a blow. Not like in the 70s when people were like, I got a blow, or they meant they had to leave. Or in the 80s when they said, I got a blow, and they meant cocaine. Yeah. (laughs) Or in the sensual sense of meaning he's about to ejaculate. Or perform oral sex. He staggered. Oh, lean on me, sir. Jane, you offered me your shoulder once before. Let me have it now. Yes, sir. Yes. And my arm. Also, like, yeah, that's exactly what I just said. Just like, everything's got to be a thing with this guy. He's had a blow. A blow. He's had a blow. Oh, God. He sat down, made me sit beside him. Holding my hand in both of his own, he chafed it, gazing on me. At the same time, the most troubled and dreary look. My little friend said he. Wish I were in a quiet island with only you. Trouble and danger and hideous recollections removed. Can I help you, sir? I'd give my life to serve you. Whoa! Jane, if aid is wanted, I'll seek it at your hands. I promise you that. Thank you, sir. Tell me what to do. I'll try, at least, to do it. Fetch me now, Jane, a glass of wine from the dining room. They will be at supper there, and tell me if Mason is with them and what he is doing. I went... I found all the party in the dining room at supper. Mr. Rochester had said they were not seated at the table. Supper was arranged on the sideboard. Each had taken what he chose, and they stood about here and there in groups, plates and glasses in their hands. Everyone seemed in high glee. Laughter and conversation were general and animated. Mr. Mason stood near the fire talking to Colonel and Mrs. Dent and appeared as merry as any of them. I filled a wine glass. I saw Miss Ingram watch me frowningly as I did so. She thought I was taking a liberty, I dare say, and I started to the library. Mr. Rochester's extreme pallor had disappeared and he looked once more firm and stern and took the glass from my hand. Here is your health, ministrant spirit, he said. He swallowed the contents and returned it to me. What are they doing, Jane? Laughing and talking, sir. They don't look grave and mysterious as if they have heard something strange. (laughs) Subtle. Not at all. They are full of jests and gaiety. And Mason? He was laughing too. If all these people came in a body and spit at me, what would you do, Jane? Turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. He half smiled. But if I were to go to them, and they only looked at me coldly, and whispered sneeringly among each other, and then dropped off and left me, one by one, what then? Would you go with them? Rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you, to comfort me. Yes, sir, to comfort you as well as I could. And if they laid you under a ban for adhering to me, I probably should know nothing about their ban. And if I did, I should care nothing about it. And you could dare censure for my sake? I could dare it for the sake of any friend who deserved my adherence, as you, I am sure, do. Go back now into the room, step quietly up to Mason, and whisper in his ear that Mr. Rochester has come and wishes to see him. Show him in here, and then leave me. Yes, sir. I did his behest. The company all stared at me as I passed straight among them. I sought Mr. Mason, delivered the message, and preceded him from the room. I ushered him into the library, and I went upstairs. At a late hour, I had been in the bed some time. I heard the visitors repair to their chambers. I distinguished Mr. Rochester's voice and heard him say, This way, Mason. This is your room. He spoke cheerfully. The gay tones set my heart at ease. 
was soon asleep. What do you think? You know, I I don't remember. This is something I'm going to have to reckon with internally, but on this read, it felt like the scene was far more erotic than I remembered it. Super erotic. So Mr. Rochester is uh, dressed in the attire of a woman, sitting in a chair, asking Jane to kneel before him in front of a fire and just telling her not only about her physical appearance, but the intensity of her, like, right, she is seen by him. She says in one moment, you know, the voice changes. She feels as if she's looking into some sort of mirror when she hears those words, which is, you know, one of the more satisfying things a romantic hero can do, right? But also just like high strangeness. What a weird ploy. What a weird ploy. Rochester is so theatrical. It's very clear that he delights in costumes. He loves doing the charade thing. He like clearly loves doing this which is just like a different kind of weirder charade. And like what a elaborate ruse to try and get the girl you like to be like, oh yeah, I guess I think about Mr. Rochester sometimes. Right? Like what a goose. And I think it really speaks to his own vulnerability that he hasn't just like met her on her level. Yeah. I mean, when he's describing her mouth and he's like, it delights in laughter and is disposed to impart all the brain conceives, though I dare say it would be silent on much of what the heart experiences. That's like his experience of her so perfectly. He's like, I love the way your brain works, but like your heart is closed to me. Is it that her heart is closed to him or is it once again that he is incapable of like expressing himself right like he's telling her how he feels but in all of these like abstract obtuse like incredibly obtuse ways like theatrically obtuse ways and then he's like but you don't feel the same and it's like why would she ever like deign to like and it also speaks to like a real lack of class awareness on the part of Mr. Rochester like he's like I'm so glad you wouldn't turn me out because of these people not liking me and it's like well she wouldn't be beholden to that at all she's like your employee literally her bread and butter is like at your command one other thing that I wanted to point out about that massive monologue that you read so beautifully when he says at the end so far I have governed myself thoroughly I have acted as I inwardly swore I would act but farther may try me beyond my strength like he's like holding himself back like if if I stay in the skies if I keep looking at you in the firelight like I'm gonna pounce is basically what he's saying out loud and then he says leave me the play is played out which is from Henry the fourth play out the play it's also Thackeray may have recalled this passage as the last words of Vanity Fair and for those who've listened to our interview with Rose Lerner know that there's a whole rumor about Makepeace, Thackeray, and Charlotte Bronte. Or there was. <laughs> there was, yeah. That's uh, further evidence in this text. You know, I think we talk about Charlotte revealing herself fully in Jane, but I think these like elaborate clear, confident, if somewhat obtuse declarations of admiration that Rochester imparts are very much Charlotte as well, thinking about her dedication to a man she had never met and had only read his books, referring to the dedication of the second edition that Riz Lerner read to us that Charlotte Bronte wrote to Thackeray, kind of feeding these rumors. Accidentally. (laughs) Accidentally, yeah. I think, like, Rochester's theatrics... And his love of that also comes from a place of wanting to disembody himself that we kind of touched on in our conversation with 
Rose as well. I think that's right. I think like Rochester is trying to disembody himself, but there's also something in that disembodiment that I think is like, it's almost like his feelings are too big for his body. And like, he's like constantly performing the grand gesture and is like seeking a grand declaration from Jane. And like, that's just not her bag. And so like, that's such a weird sort of blind spot that he has. And like terribly relatable, although I would say so relatable. The gender roles are often reversed, right? Reversed, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We give the love we want to receive, but we aren't always great at understanding how other people are delivering themselves to us. Yes, what you just said. We give the love we want to receive. That was the thing that I'm like, Rochester, this isn't the way. Like, she's not going to get it. Jane is not going to accept it this way. Like, what are you doing, you goose? That's exactly right, right? Like, their love languages are misaligned in this scene. Uh, He thinks that she has this, like, interpersonal wall, but in actuality, she has just, like, tons of socio-cultural barriers to clear before she can express herself as freely as he does. And he's just not conscientious of those mores and mores. And probably because he's transgressed so far himself that he's not able to perceive them. And also the fact that he's just, you know, landed a man, you know, all that significantly more fun stuff to be than a governess. It's true. Boy, what a good chapter. Thank you for reading it. I'm glad you enjoyed being read too. I do. I love it. Uh, I had a lot of way easier words than you had last time. All right. Well, join us next time for chapter 20 of Jane Eyre. Yeah. Who knows what new outfits people will don? Who knows what kinds of blackface Mr. Rochester will appropriate? Also, another signifier that Orson Welles really over-identified with Rochester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which we definitely need to talk about that. We have some point. Should. So anyways, continue to problematize your favorites. And while you're at it, if you could just loosen your Janes. But not your heirs. Mwah. Mwah.